Well, good morning. Uh, it's fantastic to be with you. Um, I want to kick off by um, encouraging you to use your imagination. For some of you, uh, it will require quite a lot of imagination because uh, I-, I want you to uh, imagine that you absolutely love golf. Uh, any golf players here? Two. Uh, okay, the rest of you, uh, try and gather some of the passion for the game from these two kind of situated in uh, the, the, these edges of the room here. Imagine you absolutely love golf. You buy golf magazines every month. Uh, you subscribe to uh, instructional golf DVDs. You kind of race home to uh, get them from the doormat when you're expecting them to arrive. Uh, you watch golf whenever it's on TV. Uh, you carry a set of golf clubs with you wherever you go just in case there's the opportunity for a game. Imagine that, okay? Are you with me? Yeah, yeah, okay. Bearing all of that in mind, imagine one day, completely out of the blue, Tiger Woods, who, if you're not aware, is quite a good golf player. Would you concur? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe on the wane slightly, but in his day, he was right up there. I was going to mention Rory McIlroy or someone else, but I thought others may not have heard of him. So imagine Tiger Woods phones you completely out of the blue and offers to fly you out to Florida and give you some one-to-one tuition on how to improve your golf game. Now, imagining that golf is your chief passion in life, Do you think you'd take him up on the offer? This is an opportunity to receive top draw instruction from one of the greatest components of the game in the world in the area of your deepest passion. And if that doesn't do it for you, it's in Florida. Really, it's a can't-miss deal. That is an absolute no-brainer. Now, for those of you, it's just too much to try to imagine that. Imagine this happening to you in whatever your deepest passion actually happens to be. I don't know, imagine Jamie Oliver dropping by one day uh, and offering to cook a meal with you. Or imagine Sebastian Vettel offering to take you for a spin around Silverstone. Or imagine uh, the, the doorbell go, you open the door and there's Tom Jones standing right there on your doorstep offering to give you singing lessons. So if you it's your worst nightmare, uh, I'm going to keep going. Imagine Cristiano Ronaldo offering to fly you out to Madrid and give you one-to-one training on how to take a free kick like he does. Or how about this one? Imagine... Gok Wan volunteering to take you clothes shopping. Uh, okay, I'm going to quit. Uh, whatever, whatever your deepest passion is, is a can't-miss deal. Now, here's why I bring this up. We are 10 chapters in to our study of Luke's Gospel. For, for 10 whole chapters... Jesus' disciples have been watching Jesus like a hawk. They've been watching his every move. And here's what they've come to realize. Here was someone with a connection to God, the like of which they have never, ever seen before. And so in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, finally they pluck up the courage and ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And no wonder. You see, Luke shows us how prayer characterized Jesus' life 
at every stage. Jesus prayed when his schedule got very, very demanding. When he began his public ministry, Luke 5, 15 tells us that the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He prayed when his schedule got demanding. He prayed before big decisions in his life. Luke 6 verse 12 describes how one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night, we've even got the lighting, kind of imagine it, the night there on the mountainside. Uh, So much like night, I can't even see my notes right now. Um, But then when morning came, uh you're there, He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them to be apostles. But before he chose the 12, he spent a night in prayer. Can you imagine? Don't do the nights there. (laughs) Can you imagine what it would be to have the, the major decisions of your life bathed in prayer like that? Jesus prayed when his friends were in trouble. Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Imagine what that must have felt like to Peter to have Jesus say that to him, this master prayer saying, I'm praying for you. And then, of course, Jesus prayed when he was faced with his ultimate challenge. Immediately before his arrest, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives as usual. In other words, this really was quite a common practice for him. And his disciples followed him. He said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. From the very beginning of his ministry, right through to the very end, Jesus' closest friends, his apprentices, if you like, his disciples, had a front row seat to watch the greatest prayer who ever prayed. Now, this is merely me speculating, but I think if you were to sit down with the disciples and ask them, hey, what's Jesus' secret here? What do you think it is that enables him to live such an extraordinary life? You've seen the miracles, you've seen his power, you've seen his astonishing authority, you've seen the clarity he had in terms of knowing God's will for his life. What's the secret? I think if they had to answer in one word, that word would be prayer. You see, when Jesus prayed, they saw things happen. Well, one time in Luke 9, verse 29, we're told Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face was transformed and his clothing flashed like lightning. Has that ever happened to you when you pray? It's like your, your whole face lights up like a light bulb. It happened to Jesus. And his friends witnessed it. And and the more they thought about it, the more they wanted to know God like that for themselves. So we get to chapter 11, and they're begging Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Having seen firsthand the priority and the effect, the fruit of prayer in the life of Jesus, 
They wanted to be like him. They wanted to learn from him. They wanted to emulate him. And you know what? I think probably you do too. Or you wouldn't be here. Let's face it. If I could stand at the front here today and offer you a better, a closer, a more dynamic relationship with God, wouldn't you be interested? I think probably you would. And so, what I want to talk about this morning, in fact, not just this morning, for the next couple of months, is right down to the very heart of the most important things in life and faith. Your deepest passion and mine. It's not golf, uh, it's, it's not shopping, it's not any of those other things. It's to know and experience more of God for yourself. If you like, we're going to enroll together into the school of prayer. And none other than Jesus himself, the greatest prayer ever to have lived, is going to be our tutor. And for our textbook, we get to look at the richest single source in the entire Bible when it comes to practical information about how to pray. It's not a case study where we get to eavesdrop on someone else praying. No, it's more of a model showing us actually, practically, how to do it. Here's what Jesus says, Luke 11, verse 2, his disciples have just said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. In Matthew's version of this prayer, and if you look down at the footnotes uh, in your Bible, probably it says, some manuscripts say, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. I'm guessing most of us are pretty familiar with this prayer. Maybe when you're growing up at school in assemblies, you kind of repeat the words parrot fashion. Uh, maybe uh, in churches you've been in in the past, again, you would kind of stand and say these words together. I think familiarity can breed contempt. Uh, I think perhaps we're so used to these words that there's the danger of us missing out on something of their incredible richness. Which is why I want us to spend the next couple of months trying to get to grips with the treasure we find in these words. Just to say, some of you even now are probably thinking, two months on prayer. <laughs> it's like week after week turning up and being battered for not praying enough and being made to feel guilty and condemned for our lack in our prayer life. Oh no, uh, that is not the aim. That, 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 that's not the kind of mood I'm looking to create. Uh, rather, I'm seeing it as two months of us being inspired. Two months uh, of us being equipped to get to know God better for ourselves. Not 
lambasted and made to feel guilty, but actually getting our gaze lifted to actually the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and being given some practical tools about how to go about getting to know our Heavenly Father better. And so before going any further, I want to pray and ask God to come and help us today that we wouldn't feel condemned by this. But even today, as we, we launch this mini-series on prayer in, in Luke 11, we'll catch something of the heart of Jesus himself. Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that, even as you go on to say in the next few verses here in Luke, if we ask our Heavenly Father to send the Holy Spirit... He's going to do it. It's what he loves to do. And so, Father, I want to ask you that you send your spirit to us right now. Spirit of God, would you stir in all of us greater passion to know the Father through the Son? Holy Spirit, would you enable these profound words of Jesus to hit our hearts with faith? rather than condemnation. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? Would we learn from you? Would you help us to apply this in a way that's living, in a way that releases us to be the kind of people in our heart of hearts we really want to be? How will we find prayer in our own lives, whether it's a struggle or a source of joy? I want to pray that you'd blow on us this morning and increase our ability to pray in a way that brings life and hope and purpose and breakthrough into our lives. That's what we're asking for. Please do it. Amen. Amen. Really, all I want to do with the time I've got left this morning is give you a bit of an overview. I want us to examine this model prayer of Jesus under three main headings. Jesus shows us, number one, what we must have before we pray, what we must do as we pray, and then the key to getting all of this. Number one, what we must have before we pray. Two things. Number one, desire. If you want to learn how to pray, if you want to improve your prayer life, first thing you need is to want to know God for himself. If you think about it, most of the things we do in the Christian life are seen by others. People see if we pitch up here on a Sunday and if we give into the offering and if we're on one of the serving teams, it's quite possible to uh, start out in all of these things uh, with a heart of wanting to honour God and please Him and serve Him and others. But over time, gradually, for, for those things to end up being more about us impressing others or in some way getting worse for ourselves through what we do. But when it comes to praying, most of the time it's done in private. No one knows about it other than you and God. And so, if you think about it, there's no other motive than you wanting to be with God, wanting to spend time with Him for yourself, you wanting to enjoy your relationship with Him. It's not about impressing others. It's all about you and God. Bottom line is, if you really desire to get to know God, if you're here today and you're hearing all of this and think, yeah, I, I am really serious about all of this, then over time, inevitably, 
you will have a sustained, substantial prayer life. So really in all of this, almost the assumption behind it all is you need to have desire. Do you desire to know God for himself? If you do, this series is going to be great for you. Starts with desire. Second thing is grace. You need to understand that you have relationship with God based on grace, not your performance. Just notice, of all the ways Jesus could have started this prayer, he chooses to use the name Father. He's saying, if you're going to learn how to pray, you need to start by grasping that you are praying to your heavenly Father. What does that mean? Just think for a moment about how you relate to a boss or to your teacher at school or your tutor at college. You you might have a good relationship. You might even on a good day say that you're friends. But in the end, the quality of that relationship depends on your performance. Are you doing what you're asked to do? Are you hitting your targets? Are you performing well? And if you fail to do so, if you fail to do what you're supposed to do, in the end, your boss, your tutor, your teacher is going to have serious words with you. Uh, They might fire you. They might expel you. So your relationship is based on the level of your performance. What about a father and his relationship with his children? Well, I'll suggest a father is every bit as concerned about performance as a boss. In some ways, even more concerned. He wants his children to do well, to behave, to be good. But the difference is, if a child fails, melts down, really blows it, goes off the rails, a good father doesn't fire his children. A good father stays unconditionally committed to the failing child. In fact, when your child is in trouble, often through those times, your love is evoked all the more. It's even more intense. In other words, a father's relationship with his children is based on grace It's not conditional. Whereas the relationship of a boss with his employees or a teacher with their children is very much based on performance, it's not what it's like with a child and their father. And Jesus is saying, you cannot pray the kind of prayer that I'm talking about here unless you pray it on family terms. Now, for those of us who perhaps struggle to relate to God as Father because maybe we've had a really poor earthly father. I say this gently, but how do you know your earthly father wasn't good unless you had some kind of a standard to measure him by? Surely the reason that you resent him, are bitter towards him, you are mad at him, is because 
Inwardly, you know what a good father should be like. And God is that good father. See, when Jesus encourages us to pray to God as father, he isn't telling us to measure God against the standard of human fathers. No, it's the other way around. He's saying, from now on, measure human fathers by the standard of God. God is the perfect father. He's the father we've all longed for, whether we've had a good one or a bad one. Two things we need to have before we pray. It starts by us wanting to know God. It's got to be fueled by desire. And we've got to know God as our Father. Got to relate to Him on the basis of grace, not performance. Got to know that He is unconditionally committed to us. Those are the prerequisites. Those are the things we need to have before we pray. Now let's look secondly at what we need to do as we pray. When Jesus says pray like this, I don't think he meant that we can only pray these words. I don't think he's giving us a prayer for us to repeat. He's giving us a model to try and base our praying on. As I want you to see, there is a real natural flow to all of this. It starts with adoring. Do you notice how the first part of this prayer, almost the first third of it, is all about God? It doesn't start with your needs, your difficulties, your problems, your concerns, your situation, it starts with God. I'd suggest there is nothing you need more than to not look at your needs. Jesus is saying that the primary goal of prayer is to plunge yourself into God. To think about who he is until you're full of wonder, until you're dazzled by his brilliance. He's holy. That's what hallowed means. He's sovereign and kingly. It's what kingdom speaks of. But he's also intensely personal. He has a name. He's our father. So much here about the greatness of God. Spot waving aside. Ever noticed how in so many of the Psalms in the Old Testament, the psalmist finds himself in a pretty dire situation. He has people hunting him down, trying to kill him. He has promises from God that aren't being realized, and he's feeling pain, he's feeling cut off, he's feeling alone. Depths of emotion, of pain and suffering and grappling with this situation. But invariably what happens in the Psalms is the psalmist forces himself to focus on God. And as he does that, the whole mood of the psalm changes. It's like he gets a completely different perspective. As he focuses on God in the midst of pretty difficult situations, he comes to a place of acknowledging ultimately God is enough for me. If I have God and nothing else, he's enough. And from that place, the psalmist then gets faith to face his current situation and his future. If you struggle with prayer, the psalms are a great place to go to and use these prayers as your prayers. Use them as a vehicle to express what you're feeling, as a a way of training yourself to focus in on something of the glory of God. 
Jesus says, first thing you need to do when you come to pray is to see and adore God for who He is. Second thing you need to do involves accepting. And that is, between focusing on who God is and in the end bringing our requests to Him comes something else. In Matthew's version of this prayer, and as I've already said in the footnotes here in Luke, we're told by Jesus to pray, your will be done. In other words, we're not to say we need these things until we've said, but you know what I need. We're to pray from a position of surrender, from a place of accepting that at the end of the day, God knows best. Remember, the whole premise for this prayer is that God is our Father. He is a good Father, and we come to Him as His children. Now, I like to think of myself as a kind, loving, generous Father who is constantly, 24-7, driven by desire to give good things to my children. Unfortunately, they're not here to back this up. If they were, they'd be nodding. I mean, of course, this is our life. But that doesn't mean that I give my children absolutely everything they ask for. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's like, Dad, can I plug in that electric drill and play with it in the bath? No! because you'll electrocute yourself. Or dad, can I go right to the edge of that 300 foot precipice and play there? No, because you could easily fall over the edge and die. But of course, when my children hear me deny or delay their requests, they tend to think they know better. They resent it, they complain, they argue, they nag, they suggest that I don't really love them. Now, do you know what worry is? I think ultimately it's us thinking that we know how our lives ought to go and fearing that God isn't going to get it right. And so we worry and we're anxious and we get stressed. I think that's what worry is. That's the root of it. Take it a step on. Do you know what bitterness is? I think it's us thinking we know best and that God hasn't got it right. And so we rail against Him. We're angry. We're bitter towards Him. And Jesus here is inviting us to lay down this horrible, crushing burden of thinking that we know. He's calling us to accept that we're like children, and ultimately, our Heavenly Father knows best. He's saying, don't just grasp His greatness, please grasp your humanity. Get in touch with your limitations. Get in touch with the fact that You can't see what he can see, except that he's God and you're not. You see how different this is? Instead of rushing into praying, gimme, 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 we're to start from a place of surrender. I I don't actually know what's best in this situation. Your will be done. 
I am going to ask you for all the things I want, but you're my Father and I trust you. Even when I don't understand. And do you know what happens when you pray this way? You get changed over time. You're going to be a way less worried person, a less anxious person, a less stressed person, a less fearful person, a less bitter person, a less angry person. You're going to learn what the Apostle Paul refers to in the New Testament as the secret of being content in any and every situation. Start by adoring God. Then move on to accepting He's a good Father. And now you're ready to get down to asking. All kinds of stuff to ask for. You you can pray for God's kingdom to come. In other words, pray for the healing of everything materially and spiritually that's broken in the whole world. So pray for an end to injustice and poverty and violence. Pray for our city, our nation, our government. Pray for other parts of the world where there's war and oppression. Pray for peace. And then pray for your daily bread. In other words, it is okay for us to ask God for stuff for ourselves. I mean, He cares about you. He wants to provide for you, and He has the power to do so. I mean, come on, if you genuinely believe that, why wouldn't you bring all your needs to Him? And pray for forgiveness. Again, it sounds obvious, but do you do that? Do you pray like that? I think one of the marks of real spiritual maturity is the length of time taken between sinning and repenting. The shorter the gap, the more mature. The words of 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and He's just and He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if you believe that, if you know you've been forgiven, you'll be humble. If you know that you've been forgiven much, it stops you getting on your high horse when others wrong you. And on the other hand, if you know that you've really been forgiven, you're not going to walk around the whole time just feeling guilty and condemned, feeling bad about yourself hating yourself, beating yourself up because you haven't done this and you haven't done that. If you like that with yourself, if you hate yourself, you're not living forgiven. And if you like yourself too much and you're proud and trampling on others, probably not living forgiven either. To live forgiven is to be humbled and empowered all at once. Pray for that. And then pray not to be led into temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 promises us that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Ask God to protect you from temptation beyond what you can bear, beyond what you can cope with. 
and ask him to show you the way out from the temptation you do face. Is that how you pray? You start by plunging yourself into God. Do you open your hands and say, Father, your will be done. Do you bring your requests to your Heavenly Father with confidence and boldness and freedom? Well, lastly, I think there's one big key to praying like this. Here it is. Right at the end of Jesus' life, as we've seen already, he prayed. In fact, he prayed a version of this prayer. And ultimately, I don't think this prayer will change your life the way it could do unless you get to see that Jesus didn't just say pray like this, but he actually practiced what he preached. You see, every other religion says pray to God because he's God and you're human. Only Christianity takes it several steps further and says our God became a weak human being we have a God who himself had to pray. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And right at the end of his life, as he faced the prospect of going to the cross to bear the punishment for our sins, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find him praying, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Father, please, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How do we ever get the power to surrender everything to God? I think it's as we look at Jesus and see how he surrendered his life for us. What could ever motivate us to pray, your will be done? It's as we see Jesus praying the very same prayer and going to the cross, bearing our sin so that we could know forgiveness. When Jesus prayed, your will be done, it was under infinitely worse circumstances than we will ever, ever, ever face. But he prayed it and went to the cross to create the way for us to relate to his heavenly Father as our Father. When we see that he prayed, your will be done for us, it empowers us to pray, your will be done for him. I mean, we can trust him, can't we? Can't we trust a God who came to earth and can relate firsthand to the pressures, the trials, the problems we face? We can trust someone, can't we, who had to wrestle in prayer like that? like we do. And if he was willing to take that huge cup for me, I tell you, I'm willing to take these much smaller cups for him. If he can say, your will be done in that great test, I can say, your will be done in my much smaller tests. So if you see Jesus praying and saving you, surely you'll be able to trust him. Because you'll know the depth of his commitment to you, his grace for you. Because Jesus Christ on the cross took my sin upon himself, so it's covered, so it's all gone. If you see how Jesus prayed at the end of his life, it will enable you to enter into the Lord's prayer and be changed forever.